0: Letter of Ephesians, and this is Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 21, and I'm going to read through uh, chapter 6, verse 9. I was going to just pull out the parts that you wanted to hear, but I'm going to read all of this text. Verse 21 begins, "...submit to one another out of reverence for Christ." However, each one of you must also love his wife, as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that... He He who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. We have one more week after today of looking at the text from Ephesians. Next week is Fighting Like Christ. And we are looking at Ephesians 6, 10 to 24 on the armor of God. And the next week, we are going to have an Ephesians question and answer. And so I have a few questions that I have or things that uh, were uncovered that we didn't get to in this series uh, that we're going to try and address that following week. Uh, But this is also a chance if you have questions that have come up as you've been reading through Ephesians or questions that came up during the the sermons, uh, jot those down or email those to me and we'll try and get through some of those questions. But this is a chance that we can be growing together, reading the Word together, and uh, growing and learning together. As we look at this uh, passage this morning that's Got a lot in it. There's a lot packed in, and so there's a lot to unpack. Uh, As we look at this this morning, would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you so much for the Bible, for your word. We thank you that it is living and breathing and active, and yet we open up this passage this morning, and there's some parts of this passage that make us squirm a little, and um, just kind of make us rub our heads and ask questions. So I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would be in this place this morning, moving in our midst, uh, revealing your word to us. Uh, May we be learning and growing in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So I get to a passage like this. And this week, I was really excited. And that sounds weird given, you know, wives submitting to husbands and the children and, the, and especially the slaves thing. But I get really excited to get to a passage like this because there's so much happening and, and there's a lot for us to dig into. Of course, this passage has a checkered history of sometimes providing good news and sometimes being used to keep people oppressed rather than setting them free. At times in history, this passage has been used um, or abused to maintain power structures, especially over women uh, or slaves. Uh, Some in the church don't even want to address passages like this. They just ignore it. They kind of skip over it. They don't want to deal with it. Uh, But we're here, and this is a part of God's inspired word. And so I think it's important for us that even though it feels uncomfortable, and we read this thing about the slaves, um, that we dig into it and see what's there. So I'm excited to look at this passage because I think it gives us an opportunity to see the radical, upside-down nature of the gospel, Uh, We have to do a little digging to see how Paul addressed these groups and see how it applies to our lives today. This portion of scripture is sometimes called a household code. It's a, a way for an author uh, to talk about the family structure. And Paul is not the first person to sit down and provide um, some insight into the family and one of these household codes. One of the most famous codes in the ancient world was written by Aristotle, a great Greek philosopher, and he wrote in his work, Politics in 350 BC, so about 400 years before Paul writes. Aristotle used the household as a key building block for understanding politics, and Aristotle was particularly interested in power structures. Aristotle addressed three power relationships in the family. He addressed husbands and wives, fathers and sons, and masters and slaves. And he writes primarily to those who had the power about how to properly exercise their power. And Aristotle's work helped to define the typical Greek and Roman family structure, that his work was kind of the uh, accepted way things were. Paul addresses these same relationships that Aristotle dealt with. However, what we're going to see in each relationship is that Paul addressed The party that had less cultural power, right? Uh, He addresses the women, the children, and the slaves first. They were the ones that didn't have the power in Paul's world. Other ancient writers talked to the husbands about how to control or lead their wives. Uh, They talked to fathers how to teach their sons. They didn't really care if the women, if the daughters found out were educated or anything. And they talk to masters how to have authority over slaves. And so Paul, by addressing wives, children, and slaves first as independent moral agents, that means that they are willing, are able to make their own decisions. People who can choose for themselves, who have their own personality, their own will, who are free in Christ and able to make their own decisions. This is a radical statement For Paul's time. And so in Paul's day, the way he uh, writes this argument is he gives his first and main primary point first, submit to one another, and he builds up a defense um, of that main point. We always like in our world to kind of put the climax at the end, to put that main point at the end. So we're going to go through this passage backwards this morning. So that begins with slaves and masters. Over the summer, we had an opportunity in our combined Sunday school class to look at the issue of slavery in the Bible. And much to our uh, 21st century Western post-American slavery experience, the Bible never outrightly condemns slavery. Uh, In August uh, last month, the 400th anniversary of African slaves coming to America was recognized. In 1619-20, some African slaves were brought to Point Comfort, which is now Hampton, Virginia. But in the ancient world, uh, they just didn't understand or comprehend a world that didn't have slavery as a part of their system. It's just kind of beyond their imagination. And so we have to hear Paul's words in the context of his world, not ours. The Bible is first God's word to them in their day, and then because God inspired authors using words and images and the world that they experienced, and then the Holy Spirit helps us understand what difference that makes for our lives now. So let's try to hear Paul's words in his day. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. In this passage, who does Paul do first? Slaves. Thanks. Thanks, Katie. Yeah, he talks to slaves first. He tells the slaves that they are supposed to obey which is really interesting because Paul is talking to them as though they have a choice. This is, ob- obedience is just what slaves do. There is no option in the ancient world. And Paul is talking to these people as though they have a choice. He, and then he talks about beyond obeying, beyond just doing the thing that they tell you to do, he says to serve with sincerity of heart just as you would obey Christ. Paul tells slaves to serve as though they are serving Christ. Paul's audience would have been shocked to hear Paul address slaves first because he's giving them the position of authority. He's addressing them first as people able to choose, and he's asking them to voluntarily submit and serve their masters as an expression of their devotion, not to a slave master, but as an expression of their devotion to Christ. And then Paul talks to masters, and he says, treat your slaves in the same way. And if there were any masters, people that owned slaves, hearing this word read, they would have said, what? Treat my slaves in the same way? Paul says, remember, your master is And theirs is Christ. In the Roman world, there actually were opportunities for someone who uh, owned slaves, a slave owner, to submit to slaves because slaves in the ancient world could be very well-educated people. They could be teachers, doctors, scribes. They could own property. They could even own other slaves. And certainly within the context of the church... Paul expects that there are slave owners and slaves that are a part of this community of faith, and Paul doesn't limit spiritual gifts or serving in the church to slave owners or slaves, and so he expects that within the community of faith, within the church, that there is this submission happening to one another, not based on um, their worldly um, standing, not based on Uh, how much money they had or anything, but based on gifts, based on uh, following Jesus. So what does this have to do with us? Fortunately, this text has been used uh, over the years to justify the continuation of slavery in America. Um, The religion of slavery that kind of masqueraded as Christianity emphasized obedience of slaves. Of course, they usually left out the commands to the masters to treat their slaves in the same way. It was about having power over people instead of what Paul talks about walking in the way of love and he talks about mutual submission. Maybe this does have some instruction for our lives today. We don't have the slave-slave owner relationship. We do have employee-employer relationships which Depending on how you feel about your place of work, um, maybe that's not terribly different for you. I don't know. But if you're an employee, maybe Paul would write, how can you serve your employer as you would serve Christ? What would it look like for you to work in your job, maybe that you love, and maybe that's just bringing home a paycheck with a sincere heart? Or if you're an employer... How can you treat your employees the same way? What would it look like for you to submit to employees? How might these dynamics change your place of work? How might this bear witness to the good news of the kingdom? Paul then moves on to addressing fathers and children. And Paul addresses fathers uh, because in the ancient world, fathers were the ones primarily um, responsible for instructing their children. Uh, They were the ones that had access to education and all of that. And so uh, this is why Paul addresses fathers in particular here. His words aren't too different from accepted practice in the ancient world. uh, But Paul, again, addresses the party with less power first, which in this case is children. And this is what Paul says. He says, obey your parents. Um, It's interesting that in each of these cases, slaves, uh, children, wives, Paul does not address every possible situation. Paul does not address issues of uh, abuse of slaves, children, or wives. Um, Paul doesn't come up with every potential scenario. Paul is providing general advice for the family, um, and for looking at these relationships and how they can work together in a way that honors Christ. But Paul tells children also beyond obeying their parents to honor your father and mother. Beyond just doing what they say, it addresses our attitude of how you um, talk to your parents, how you uh, reflect them in, in the world. And Paul reminds them that this commandment comes with a blessing. Honoring your parents leads to a blessed and lengthy life. And Paul talks to fathers. He says, do not exasperate your children. Uh, my kids started back to school this week. And uh, so we had to restart the lovely ritual of getting ready for school. And they don't like being back in that ritual. I'm sure all of the kids in here that are students, you just love getting up in the morning and getting ready for school. And that's, I'm sure, just the joy of your life. Um, It isn't for my children. They don't like getting ready for school in the morning. And so I had to keep, I was looking at this passage, I read it on Monday, and then Tuesday I had to do it, and I didn't really care for that. I had to keep reminding myself, do not exasperate your children, do not exasperate your children, do not exasperate your children. I I, I tried to remind them several times that before that it says, children, obey your parents. But then I had to come back to this part for me. I think Paul's saying, don't keep harping on or badgering or nagging. Don't keep... Pressuring your children beyond what they're capable of. But Paul does say to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. I think today in our world, parents tend to be, uh, we tend towards one of two extremes. Either we're helicopter parents and we're just like hovering over everything our kids do and we're monitoring them and we got to know where they're at every second of every day and we're, you know, watching over them doing their homework, and we're letting them know every little thing that they do right or wrong. And the other side is that our world has a lot of hands-off parents where they just let kids do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, and, and we say, well, we're, we're teaching them to be independent. Well, mm, not if you're never giving input, never, if, you're, if you're never guiding and, and leading and training that's just hands off. I think I'm more of a hands off parent until there's a schedule involved. Until I have to be somewhere, if I got to like be at church, or my kid, or we got to get out to the school bus, or we got to leave for Nana and Papa's at this time, or we got to leave for Hershey Park or wherever at this time, then suddenly I become a helicopter parent, and I I need your teeth brushed, I need your shoes on, I need blah, 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 and I, man, I'm always there and I try to just step back. Um, so I find myself in both sides of this sometimes. I think Paul would want us trying to walk that middle ground of actively participating in guiding our children. Proverbs 22:6 says train children in the right way and when old they will not stray. On the other hand, we need to teach our children to grow as people that can, are capable of making their own decisions. And we hope that those are good decisions. And, and this is why the, we need to spend the time investing in them and, and helping them grow and, and training them up. And sometimes that means saying, look, you need to follow my way right now. And I hope someday you understand why that is. The next relationship Paul addresses his wives and husbands. Um, Several years ago, my youngest brother was getting married in a church that his fiancee, his now now wife, this is the church that their family always gets married in. Grandma got married there, mom got married there, uh, aunts, uncles, everyone in the family gets married at this church. And my dad was going to be performing the ceremony because my dad's a pastor, and dad talked to the, the pastor or priest at this church, sure, it's no problem, you can perform the wedding, but you may not use Ephesians chapter 5 as the wedding message. You may not use that text. And my dad told me this, and my dad and I are kind of similar temperaments, and both of us, when you tell us not to preach from that, are, are kind of like, you don't tell me what you're, what I can and can't preach. Now, he wasn't planning on using that te- this text anyway, but I, I said, Dad, th- I, I had used that text just a couple years before at my middle brother's wedding. I did perform his wedding, and I used this text. And uh, so sometimes people don't even want to deal with this passage. I've heard of wedding sermons using this text, not focused on mutual submission, but focused on subjugation of the wife to her husband. As in, wives, you just need to do what your husband tells you to do. I don't think that's what Paul's saying here. In verse 21, um, what I read this morning says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, In English translations, this is a new sentence. Uh, Sometimes there's headings in our Bible, I have a heading that says, uh, instructions for Christian households, and that actually comes before verse 21. Sometimes I've seen Bibles where this heading is put in um, after verse 21, and so it separates submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and the next verse which says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Um, These headings are put there by an editor. By a publisher. These are, headings are not the inspired word of God. Um, chapters and verses are later additions to the Bible. These are not... Paul didn't sit down and go, okay, new chapter, new verse. He didn't do that, right? We add these later, sometimes to be helpful for our own study of Scripture. This is one place where some of our headings and chapters and verses are not super helpful, this verse actually says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's an incomplete sentence. It actually ties back to verse 18. Verse 18 says, be filled with the Spirit. And for Paul, what being filled with the Spirit means is that we, are, we speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, giving thanks to God And then submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. To be filled with the Spirit in part means to submit to one another. I want you to hold that thought because we're going to come back there in in a minute. Verse 22 says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And again, an English translator is trying to make this text readable to us. The word submit is not repeated here. So the thought goes like this. Be filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another, wives to your own husbands. It's assumed that what is happening here is submission. And that is what's happening. That's what Paul is is pointing to. Paul addresses the culturally weaker person in the relationship and gives them the power of choosing to submit or not, and he's saying, here's the right decision. The right decision here is to submit to one another. In the Greco-Roman world, it was virtually unanimous that husbands ruled over their wives. Aristotle, that I mentioned earlier, in addressing husbands and fathers, he wrote, It is part of the household science to rule over wife and children. For the male is by nature better fitted to command than the female. And Josephus, who was a contemporary of Paul, said, the woman, says the law, is in all things inferior to the man. Let her accordingly be submissive, not for her humiliation, but that she may be directed, for the authority has been given by God to the man. Paul doesn't talk in terms of authority here. The only time Paul talks about a man having authority over a woman is in 1 Corinthians 7, when he says, a wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. The next verse says, and a husband does not have authority over his body, but yields it to his wife. Paul's not talking about this authority over. He's talking about mutual submission. Wives, to be honest, I'm not entirely comfortable suggesting what submission looks like for you. And Paul doesn't address Every issue. What does that mean? What does submission look like? All right. I'll submit to you. All right. What does it mean if your husband is not at the same place spiritually? What does submission look like there? How does that look if submission ends up being a one-way street? The verse starts, submit to one another. That doesn't always happen. Maybe we need to ask, how might you love and serve as if it was Jesus? The emphasis of Paul's passage here, though, comes at verse 25. When Paul says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. No household code in the ancient world before Ephesians and Colossians tells husbands to love their wives. In in ancient Greece and Rome, love didn't need to be part of the arrangement here. A husband had paid a bridal price for his wife. He had paid for her, she was his, and she was going to do whatever he told her to do. But Paul says, husbands, love your wives. Mutual submission is assumed here. But in addition to that, Paul adds, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And how does Christ love the church? By giving himself up for her. And then we see Christ cleansing His bride in preparation for the wedding and making her beautiful and holy and blameless. Christ is making His bride more and more who God intended her to be. And Paul actually says more to the church than he says specifically about marriages here. But Paul is saying, look, husbands... You want to lead in your marriage? You want to be head of the home? Then lead in the example of self-sacrificing love. Now let me slip for a moment back into my youth pastor days. Let me look at the guys. All right? Make an eye contact. Make you all feel uncomfortable. Marriage between a husband and a wife is is a beautiful thing. It's meant to serve as a metaphor of Christ and the church becoming one in a mutually submitting, life-creating, loving sort of way. Not everyone needs to get married. Paul was a single guy who was completely devoted to Christ and the church and he was proud of it and he he actually encouraged others to do the same. Singleness is also a gift. Sometimes the church has kind of assumed that every good Christian needs to find their husband or their wife, and this is just the way that God meant everyone to be. And Paul's saying, look, I'm single, and I'm serving the church, and you know what? I don't have a lot of other um, stress. I'm completely... I said it. I said it. Go ahead. I said it. I said it. Paul was focused on serving the church. But if someday you find the right woman, you are charged. That means that you are given the directive of loving her like Christ loved the church. And it's not always pretty. it's hard work. it means self-sacrificing. It means helping your wife to become more and more who God wants her and created her to be. You want to be a man? Love your wife and love her well. Now, let me look at <laughs> Now let me look at the, the girls, the ladies. all right? Find a guy who will love you the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Mutually submitting in a relationship where you are loved like that is not a hard thing. It is a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful partnership as you come together and work together and submit to one another. What time are we at? <laughs> All right, I'm I'm going here. We didn't have. I ran out of time earlier in the first service, so you have no ending point in this service. So, Paul quotes in this passage from Genesis two twenty four on a husband and wife being one flesh. Genesis 2.24 says, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Commentator Mark Roberts says, Genesis reveals the original unity between husband and wife. God intends for husband and wife to experience unique oneness, something so profound that it will later serve as an apt picture of the unity between Christ and the church. The story of marriage in Genesis, and we're we're going there real quick because Paul goes there. The man, Adam, is created and is the source of the woman. God causes him to fall into a deep sleep because there's no helper for him, and that's not right. And God draws a rib out and creates the woman. In Ephesians, we typically understand when Paul says that the husband is the head of his wife, and Christ is the head of the church. We think in terms of authority. But this word can also mean the source. Like we talk about uh, the headwaters, the, where a s- river begins, the stream or, or the, the um, spring that a river begins at. A husband and a wife are created from one flesh in order to be one one flesh. And Adam and Eve, when they're in the garden, are completely comfortable in their naked intimacy with one another, physically, emotionally, spiritually. They are completely open and present to one another. And then sin enters in, and what's the first thing they do? They cover up. They cover up. And who do they cover up from? cover up from God, they they hide from God too, but they're also covering up and hiding from one another. In their broken state then, part of the decree that God makes as a result of the fall, as a result of sin, is that the wife's desire is for her husband and he will rule over her. But that's not how it is supposed to be. This is the result of the the brokenness, the shattered oneness that they experience that enters into the relationship. Now Paul is saying, here's what marriage should look like, submitting to one another, sacrificing for one another, two individuals coming back together to be one. Where Paul is headed is mutual submission. He talks about that in terms of slaves and masters, children and fathers, wives and husbands. But as we're working backwards through the text, Paul's greatest point, what he says, first and foremost, and what we have to conclude with is this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul connects be filled with the Spirit to submitting to one another. Submission was a a one-way street in the ancient world. And yet Paul gives three relationships common to them and what mutual submission looks like. And when I say submission, submission means voluntarily yielding in love. Look, there's some parts uh, of the Christian church that would hear this sermon this morning and say, Adam, you're suggesting that husbands should abandon their God-given role as the head of the house. And I would say, husbands, lead. But lead like Christ. It's not about authority. It's not some mistaken overemphasis on headship. It's about setting the example of self-sacrificial love. Any man can try to come into a family and take authority and tell everyone what's going on. Let me know how that works out if you try that. It takes a real man to lay down his life for the love of his life, to become more and more who she was meant to be. Other voices in the church might be offended the other way, saying, are you suggesting wives do still need to submit to their husbands? We live with liberated women in our society. And I say, yes, praise God that women have a choice, that they are valued as co-image bearers, that we're finally recognizing that this is not a, a substandard person. This is a full image bearer of Christ, and they have rights, and they can make their own decisions. They don't need a man to decide everything for them. Yes, praise God. And yes, submit to one another includes wives. Be filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Live like Christ. Praise God that women have rights. And as Christ laid down His rights and His glory and His life, so too are all of us called to die to ourselves, to follow the way of Jesus, which is the cross. In our world, submission is a dirty word. As Americans, we claim and we exercise our rights, but as followers of Jesus, we lay aside our rights and our well-being for the good, for the bettering of others. And Paul specifically has these words in mind for the church. Sometimes our individual egos get in the way in the church. Sometimes we ask questions like, What can the church do for me? And what am I getting out of church? And does the worship and the sermon and the programs meet my preferences? But Jesus is looking for a bride who's characterized by submission. And he loves his bride. And he thinks she looks beautiful. And to her, she is becoming radiant and holy and blameless. And Jesus was willing to give up his life, to give up everything to see her become who she was meant to be. Jesus is the example, and he leads by serving, and he teaches by washing feet. Let our relationships, in our places of work, in our families, in our marriages, certainly in the church, be characterized by the words, I submit to you. May it be so.